So reading Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31, and it's entitled in the NIV, The Rich Man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat from what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip at the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. Now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from, where, from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, no Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Let's just pray as I invite Nick forward. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we just thank you that, it, that sometimes it can be very hard and very challenging. I just pray for Nick as he comes to explain that passage to us this morning. That you'll be with him, that he will speak your words and we will get your understanding from that passage. Amen. Thanks. Thanks, Bill. So as you can see on the screen, we're going to do a pulpit swap series. So there are, um, there are five in the run-up to the mission. So this is me for the next few weeks. Um, and then you'll get Johnny, who's the curate from All Saints, or um, Andy from All Saints, or Keith or Chungman. And I confess, because they, they kept kind of bartering about who wanted to do which one, that I lost track of who was next week. Um, <clears throat> But the idea is that it's how the gospel, we're looking at how the gospel speaks to each and every generation. So I don't know whether you, you can just about see on this slide um, that generation, the silent generation is those born between 1928 and 45. The boomers were born between 46 and 64. The... Generation X were born between 65 and 80. Generation Y between 81 and 96. And then Generation Z from 97 to, to 2012. Um, and I've been tasked with speaking to the silent generation. So that's all of you who are 79 or over. Should we see how many people, how many people are 79 or over? Sorry, that's mean, isn't it? That's really mean. Sorry, but yeah, that, that was sorry. That was entirely inappropriate. I apologise. It's about half a dozen. <coughs> but believe me, it, it's going to speak to all of us um, by the time we're finished. 
Um, and we're going to look at this parable. So the question is this. Next slide. Are you ready um, for the big switcheroo? Are you ready for the big switcheroo? There is a moment coming for all of us when we die, unless Jesus returns first, when everything gets turned upside down. Yes, thank you. There were, it, it always reminds me as people kind of die for the sermon notes. There are sermon notes around and they're are on the, um, the windowsills. There is a moment when everything is turned upside down. The poor become rich and the rich become poor. The first will be last and the last will be first. The proud will be humbled and the, humbled will be, the humble will be exalted. Why is it going to happen like that? Well, partly that's just because the way God is. And you can see it in Christ. He was rich and he became poor. He was and is God and became a servant. He was the firstborn, the ruler over creation, and yet he was subject to death. And so because of that, we read in Philippians 2, God exalts him to the highest place. This is the nature of God, and this is the pattern of his actions, that he loves to switch things around. And it is coming. And are you ready? So we ran a course, of course, we called it Heaven Ready. We looked at some practical realities. Um, I won't tell you what they are, but uh, here's one practical tip. Label your photos before you die. Um, okay, label your photos before you die. That was, I know it's just one of those little things, isn't it? Because after you've gone, nobody knows where and when they were or, or even who they were. Anyway, we looked at some practical realities. We looked at some spiritual realities. How can we continue to minister out of weakness? How does testing mature our faith in, in older age? How do we deal with unforgiveness, grief, anxiety? What will heaven really be like? But one of the repeated comments was, we needed to hear this earlier because this needed acting on sooner. If this is to be in place in later life, we need to have heard some of this earlier on. So there was an element of what we call inaction regret. And so my task is to speak to the silent generation. And apparently they are people, they're characterized by being disciplined, loyal, and they res respect authority. I think that's probably true. You can see that. But somebody says that although they're characterized as, as being conformists and traditionalists, if you think about it, if they were, all, they were born, um, they were then kind of young people in the 1960s or the late 50s. So they were leaders in the civil rights movement. They were influential in the 1960s counterculture, potentially. And they created the rock and roll music of the 50s and 60s. So maybe they're not such traditionalists after all. Uh, maybe there are a few um, <coughs> rebels amongst us. I think there are. But the issue at hand is how do we avoid um, inaction regret? How do we reach the end of our lives without leaving things undone? And of course, part of the answer is to have started earlier on. Um, and so this doesn't just apply to the silent generation. It applies to all of us. And we've got to answer that question by looking at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And Luke has a, a, a strong interest in, in faith and money and how the two relate. So actually, he's the only one who recalls Jesus telling this, this parable. And it goes like this. There was a rich man. You heard about him. He's unnamed. 
So he could be anyone, that's the point. He's speaking to anyone in that position. He's dressed in purple, purple was the expensive clothes. So he's there in his Versace and, um, and in fine linen. And apparently that, that's his underwear. Um, so he's dressed in Versace and silk boxes, okay? And he banquets every day, he has a private chef, and he eats restaurant quality food. There's another man, he's called Lazarus. He's the only person in any parable with a name. It means blessed by God. And it's a sign straight away that God sees and knows the poor individually, by name. And not only does he see, he has compassion. And he's laid at the rich man's gate day by day. Presumably he can't get around by himself. He's covered with sores. That makes, uh, there were three things that made life worthless in, in Jewish eyes. Um, and one of them was having sores. The other one was being ruled by your wife. It's a very Jewish parable, okay. Um, but he's covered in sores. That makes it a worthless life, according um, to Jewish eyes. He'd love to eat what fell from the rich guy's table. And presumably was just kind of swept up and thrown away later on. There is kind of, uh, not sure it's true, but they, it's said that they wiped their plates with the gravy and, and threw it to the dogs. And Lazarus thinks, I'll, I'll have a bit of that, please. But instead, the wild dogs come and they lick his sores. He can't even move out of the way of the dogs or, or brush them off. And that makes him richly unclean in Jewish eyes. So that's them in life. In death, what happens? They both die in their own time, probably Lazarus first. And as he goes to heaven, he is, he is tended by angels. This poor guy who was once carried presumably by mates or by family, to beg outside a gate is now carried by angels to Abraham's side. Abraham's bosom, that's a Jewish picture of heaven. The rich man, on the other hand, was buried. We're told that, I guess a little hint there, that we all come to dust um, sooner or later. And he ends up in Hades, in hell, where he's in torment, he's in agony. And at least for the purposes of this parable, he can see Lazarus um, in, in heaven. So he calls, and he can see Abraham. So he calls to Abraham and says, send, can you please send Lazarus with a, with a drop of water to ease my agony? How amazingly shocking. How outrageous. First... He reveals that he knew who Lazarus was. This guy sitting outside his gate, he wasn't some unknown. He knew who he was, and yet he did nothing. <clears throat> and secondly, he still thinks that Lazarus should be serving him. He's still treating him like a slave. He still missed the point. And Abraham has to put him right. Abraham has to explain Abraham says to him, son, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things. While Lazarus received bad things, but now he's comforted here and you are in agony. The big switcheroo. 
You had your good things in life. Now you have agony. He received bad things. Now he is in glory. That's the central punch um, of the whole story. And so you, Abraham says to him, you chose this. You chose this when you had a life full of good things and you chose not to share them with those you saw as being beneath you. And now, Abraham says, a great chasm's been fixed uh, in place. There's no crossing. There's no crossing from one of the place to the other. It's a done deal. So the rich man says, well, then can you, can you get, if, if you won't come to me, can you send Lazarus on a, on a different errand, which will involve kind of raising him from the dead, presumably. Can you send him to my five brothers so that they won't end up here with me? Presumably they're fairly well off as well. And Abraham says they've already got Moses and the prophets. Let them read and understand. And the rich man, interestingly, he's not impressed with that, is he? No, they're not going to be persuaded by Moses and the prophets. Send someone back from the dead. And Jesus, I think this is an unsubtle hint. Because I think this is aimed at, primarily at Jewish leaders. They're not going to believe, even if somebody comes back from the dead. It's almost like a little word of prophecy. You won't be convinced, even if you see Somebody come back from the dead. What do we learn? Briefly, a handful of lessons. Although this is a parable, okay, and, and parables, you mustn't push them too far, um, but I think they're lessons we can learn, and they're borne out by the rest of the New Testament. First, there is a judgment after death that determines your location for the rest of eternity. People are destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. That's what the Bible says. After death, judgment, straight away. It's wishful thinking to, um, to say that we uh, fall asleep forever or that there's something good in everyone so that all go to heaven minus you know, one or two exceptional characters, Genghis Khan, Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, um, and the rest you're in. It's wishful thinking. It's not how Jesus sees it. There is judgment immediately after death in which your actions are taken into account. <clears throat> Secondly, there are two alternative destinations. Heaven, a place of blessing, being with God. And then when Jesus returns, a whole new earth for us to live in with God. It's a great thing, but it's a story for another day. Or hell, a place of conscious physical and mental agony. It is like fire. Always in the Bible pictured like fire. Maybe it is literally fire. So yesterday, and I, I invite you to listen out for this um, in the media, particularly on TV, maybe on the radio. <coughs> I was watching a bit of football, and the commentator said something like this. He said, I'm sure Jimmy Greaves is looking down from somewhere, um, and he would have enjoyed that. Now, isn't that really interesting? You won't, you'll hear that, and as I've said before, this is repair shop theology. Okay. Because there's an assumption, it's just a general assumption, really, that people live on, that, that they go somewhere else. And that's true, they do. But there's also a second general assumption um, that they kind of all go to heaven, or that we kind of get to decide who goes to heaven, and that's false. 
But we never get to, we never, it kind of would be impolite to say, I'm sure if Jimmy Greaves is looking up from somewhere, but that's the reality. There is an up and a down. I'm not saying for Jimmy Greaves specifically, I don't know him that well. Okay, third, there's no crossing from one to the other. Purgatory is not a biblical concept. Comes from books added into the Old Testament, the Apocrypha, the Old Testament Apocrypha, and are not accepted by Protestants. We do not believe in purgatory, so once you die, there is no more you can do. It's fixed. Fixed, fixed, fixed for eternity. For ongoing time, forever and ever, without end. It's the most frightening concept that I can think of. And the rich man experiences the ultimate kind of inaction regret. He enjoyed his wealth, but he didn't consider where it came from. He didn't consider what he could have done with it. It came from God and it was owed to the poor. Fourthly, I think it's fourthly, every person who can read or hear has all the information they need in the Bible. Jesus not concerning himself here with people who, who haven't heard he's talking to, religious folk. So if you've got the Bible, but you've chosen not to read it or to heed it, you are culpable for that choice. Fifthly, any warning that you want to bring to family or friends, you have to do now. The rich man has this brief moment of compassion, stops thinking of himself for a moment, starts thinking of his brothers. They need to be warned. <clears throat> well, they do. And well, you and I, we have no idea if our life will end today or if Jesus will return today. If you want to do any warning to your family and your friends, you need to do it now. And you have the most fantastic opportunity. Keith has made it easy for you. Because Keith's done most of the work in the, in the Passion for Life. It's a comedy night. It's not a hard invite. They're easy wins. It's designed to make it easy for you, not hard. Designed to make it easy for you. Um, I think what I always think that evangelists have this quality um, that they're not afraid to lose friends. Um, I think that's the quality of an evangelist. And I think we kind of need a little bit of that, which is in a sense, what are we, what are we doing? What are we afraid of? We're afraid that somebody will mock us or will, or will undermine a friendship. But what is that undermining compared to their loss should they go to eternity, should they die not trusting Christ? And sixthly, we are the lucky ones who have the additional evidence of somebody rising from the dead, and that is Jesus. So the rich man wants Lazarus sent back from the dead. Hello, <laughs> I'm back. Um, <clears throat> resurrection will prove it, won't he? And Jesus says, no, it won't for some people. But it is enough. Read the Gospels. How about you? What will it take to convince you if you're not already convinced? What you're given is the resurrection, primarily. And it's recorded there in the scriptures. So, moving on quickly. If you've been around church for a while, you should have some you should have some nagging sense of unease about this parable. 
Okay, it should, have, it should have disturbed you in more ways than one. Because it doesn't answer the question, how do I get to heaven? What it tells you is that to be rich and uncompassionate will get you to hell. And we're talking about rich in the sense that most of us would qualify as rich. To be rich and uncompassionate will get you to hell. But how do you go to heaven? Do you have to be destitute? Do you have to lie at somebody's gate um, and, and cultivate swords? No. It's the nature of parables. They only really make a single point. In this case, the uncompassionate rich go to hell. So how, how do I get to heaven? Well, part of the answer is you just wait until you die. When you die, you will go um, one way or the other. Actually, the more important question is, how will I be judged when I come to the end of my life? And there are two passages I want to read and just try and do this really briefly. From Paul's um, letter to the Romans. Here's the first one. We read it earlier on. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Recognize that that's you. Repent of it. In other words, start to regret it, that you've fallen short um, of God's standard. And God's standard is to love him with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and to love your neighbour as if they were yourself. Secondly, they're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Rejoice that God offers you justification by grace. He's prepared to count your sins to Christ, that Christ pays them, and he's prepared to count Christ's spotless life to you so that you are justified. In other words, you are spotless before him and you can know him as God and friend and saviour. And then receive it by faith. Put your trust in it. Put your trust in it in this sense that you're standing on top of a burning building and you suddenly realise you've got You've got no way out. You've got no... You can't do anything. And somebody comes at the bottom and and holds out a net. You jump. You need to put your trust in it in that kind of way. You need to say, God, I'm trusting you for salvation. But if we backtrack, Paul says in Romans 2, God will repay each person according to what he's done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. How do we reconcile those two things? Just said that God saves by grace. It's a uniquely Christian concept that God steps down and does the heavy lifting and puts us right with himself. Rather than coming down and saying, Oi, you, get your act together and we pull ourselves up by our socks, which we can't do. And the answer is this, that to receive God's forgiveness is to start on a journey of wanting to be like our Heavenly Father. It's to start on a journey of being transformed from the inside out by the Holy Spirit. You cannot have God inside you, which if you are a Christian, you have, and not be different on the outside. That was the thing we talked about at the communion, about like being stained by the blood. You cannot be. You cannot have God on the inside and remain unchanged um, on the outside. So the Christian call is not for you to act differently. The Christian call is for you to be a different person. I think it's much more radical 
It's not asking you to act differently. It's calling for you to be a different person from the core outward. Driven by a knowledge of how much God loves you um, in the pit of your stomach. Outwards. You can't be a Christian then and not want to do good. And listen to this from Tim Keller. The good that we must give to our neighbour <clears throat> means practical aid for an economic or physical need. He's talking about a verse from Proverbs 3. I won't read it. To not care for them when they are in need is not merely a lack of charity. It is injustice. To put it bluntly, if you have things your neighbour doesn't have, share them. Because he or she has a right to the part of the world over which God has made you a temporary steward. I'll try and read that again. It's just on two different bits of paper. If you have things your neighbour doesn't have, share them. Because he or she has a right to the part of the world over which God has made you a temporary steward. Conversely, the mark of someone who's not a God-truster is they're still self-seeking. So what will God do then at the end of your life? Okay, let's cut to the chase. The only way to be right with God is to have been justified by grace through faith. Okay, that's the only way to, to stand right with God. But how will God decide whether you've been justified by grace through faith? I have a little card, which I wrote in 1984, went to a Billy Graham mission, and it says I accepted Christ, dot, 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 this date, 1984. Um, I actually became a Christian late 1983, but I went down at that time just to kind of seal the deal. Um, When I stand before God, will he look at the card Or will he just look at my attitude to the poor? Nick's justified by grace. I can see that because he gives and he cares. Hmm. He looks to see whether there's been the big switcheroo. The switcheroo between that you've taken hold of. Taken hold of Christ's righteousness and he's taken our sinfulness. The big switcheroo. And then, as to whether there's been a, a following on, a switcheroo in your life priorities. Because I guess if there hasn't been the follow-on switcheroo, then the, what evidence have you got that the switcheroo of Christ's righteousness for your unholiness has happened? So, anyway, inaction regret. Silent generation, last slide. Silent generation, we're told, are people of loyalty and discipline and tradition. Are you a Christian just by tradition? Because you've always done it. Are you a Christian through loyalty? It's what your parents did. Or through discipline? It's just a weekly pattern. Um, And if it's any of those and only those, can I suggest that your action is to double-check where you stand with God? 
Have you really trusted God for forgiveness? And this time round, you can scour your heart, yes, to answer that question, but I suggest you just check your attitude to the poor. Have I really trusted God? You may be, if you're in that silent generation, poor yourself. Because old age can bring poverty, but if it's not you, your next action might be to make some radical financial choices. Plenty of organizations you can give through. And then consider who you might want to warn. Who do you want to be in glory with you? And actually, none of us knows how long we've got, so this is not just for the silent generation. This is for you. Make the big ruler switcheroo. Christ is Lord, not you, of your life. Make the big lifestyle switcheroo. You want to be like your heavenly father, not like a selfish person. Warn those you love, and then you'll be ready for the day which is coming to you and to everyone when God will turn everything on his head. Let's pray. Lord, you really love to turn things on their head. We know that. And so many of the things, so many of the people, so many of the things that are proud, arrogant, and think they're great will be brought low. But Father God, help us not to have slipped in amongst those people. So we're in danger of finding ourselves turned upside down. But help us to be people who are allies of the poor. Who will be rich in the next life. Let me ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.